Thank you for listening to City Awakening Podcast. City Awakening is a gospel-centered church located in East Orlando that plants new churches, striving to be a multicultural, multi-generational church. For more information about City Awakening, follow us on social media or visit www.cityawakening.org. Before we get into today's message, I do want to celebrate the fact that we are baptizing six people today. Can we praise God for that? Yeah. We are baptizing six people today, and those six people, um, three of them are from our student ministry, and two of them are from our children's ministry. Yep. Yeah. You can, yeah, we're going to clap in church. It's good, all right? That's a good thing to clap in church. It's all right. And so I just want to say special thanks to those of you who are constantly serving in student ministry or even in children, children's ministry to plant seeds of the gospel in the hearts of the lives of, the, of our students and of, and of our children, coming alongside parents. Parents, you have been trying to plant seeds in the hearts of your children and your students, right? And, and even your friends and family members who may be here to support that. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful for all that. We want to know that as a church, we want to part, partner with families. We want to partner um, with your children trying to plant seeds of the gospel um, like we're going to celebrate today that as they take root, they will say yes to Christ, and then we can celebrate that through baptism. And so we have three students we'll be baptizing, two children we'll be baptizing, and then we're going to baptize one guy who actually was a skeptic in our church for two years. Two years attending our church as a skeptic. What's, what's great about their story is this, his wife was a skeptic first. She came to faith in Christ through relationships in our church. And then two years later, he's coming to faith in Christ, and he gave me permission to share this with all of you. And he said to me a few weeks ago, he says, you know, Pastor, he goes, I've been a skeptic in this church for two years. He said, but I'm not a skeptic anymore. I believe it's all true. I believe everything about Jesus Christ is true. And so we're going to be baptizing him today. You know, one of the things that we, we often say here at City Awakening is we want to be a place where both skeptics and believers can seek truth and find joy in community. And we, we believe that that truth and that joy is found in Jesus. And these six baptisms are evidence of that. They are evidence of, of the grace of Jesus Christ still at work in, in and through our church. He is still at work in our lives today, helping to transform people's lives. They are evidence that it's your invitations that really can lead to transformations. And so we want to encourage you as a church to continue to invite people to come to church, invite people to have a relationship with Jesus even outside the church, and then pray for those that you invite. I'm excited. This is a great day. We're going to baptize them after the service. Last week we had nine families join our church as members. This week, six baptisms. A lot of reasons to have celebrations. And so we're thankful for the work that the Lord's doing in this season in our life as a church. If you're a first-time guest with us today, we want to welcome you here. Uh, We're in the middle of a, a teaching series that we're doing called the story where we are going through the biblical narrative from the very beginning in Genesis 1 to the last amen in Revelation 22. And today's text brings us to the story of the ascension of Jesus. All right, it's about a time in history when Jesus leaves his disciples. It's the last time that he is going to physically speak to his disciples face to face. He's going to speak to his disciples again, but this is the last time he's speaking to them physically face to face. But he doesn't leave them without hope. Before he ascends into heaven, he doesn't leave them without hope. See, the ascension of Jesus is full of all kinds of hope. And everybody needs hope. Everybody in this room, everybody watching online, everybody in this world, 
at some point in in their life, needs hope. If you don't get into the college that you want, you need hope that it's still going to turn out well for your life. If you don't reach your athletic goals, or maybe you, you, we have a lot of athletes in our church, a lot of great athletes in our church who are constantly working hard athletically. If you don't reach your athletic goals, or, or if you blow out, hopefully it doesn't happen, blow out your knee like Mackenzie Milton, you need hope that it's still going to turn out well for your life. If you get dumped, if you get rejected, if you, you lose your job, experience some shattered dreams, or just even have a really bad day, you need hope that it's going to turn out well for your life. If you receive the dreaded news from the doctor saying it's cancer, and there's nothing else we can do, you need hope that it's still going to turn out well for your life. There isn't a single person in this room who doesn't have moments in their life where you don't need hope. Everybody needs hope in their life. And so where do you need hope? Where do you need hope in your life right now? Now what baggage did you come in here with? What burdens have you been carrying this week? What problems have been keeping you up at night? Because I know how this goes. I know we come in here. All right, we may be smiling. We may be happy. But, but behind that face, some of us have some heavy burdens that we've been carrying. Where do you need hope in your life right now? The ascension of Jesus can give us hope. Okay? And this is what you're going to see in today's text. This is what we're going to talk about today. All right, we're going to talk about how the ascension of Jesus can give us hope. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them over to Acts chapter 1. We'll have the words on the screen for you as well. If you're new to your Bible, you're just learning your Bible, just open it up to the middle. And then keep turning to the right, and you'll find the book of Acts there. Um, just to help you out, because I know when I, when I was a new Christian, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just flipping in the Old Testament. And they're like, hey, yo, man, it's in the New Testament. It's gospel. Everybody's looking at me, so I'm helping you out, okay? Just open it to the middle, and it looks like you're an experienced person who knows where you're going, all right? Keep turning to the right. You'll be in the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Title of today's message is The Ascension of Jesus. And for those of you taking notes, um, this is the big idea of the message. The ascension of Jesus means there's hope. The ascension of Jesus means there's hope because of the daily intercession of Jesus. That'll make sense to you as we continue with the message. All right, give you a little bit of context here. The past several weeks, we've been studying the life of Jesus. And what we've um, studied last week was we talked about the crucifixion of Jesus. So we studied the historical details as well as the medical details surrounding the crucifixion of Christ. By the time we get into Acts chapter 1, what we see is, is that Jesus has already experienced excruciating pains on the cross. He's already suffered, he's already died, he's already been buried, and he's already risen from the dead on the third day. So the events we are now getting into in Acts chapter 1 are the events that have happened shortly after Jesus has risen from the dead. So we're studying the events regarding the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Let's check it out. Here we go. Acts chapter 1 verses 1 to 11 states this. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay, Luke is the author of the book of Acts. Luke was a medical doctor. He was an investigator. He was a historian. And he's writing this book to a guy by the name of Theophilus. And it's his second book that he's writing to Theophilus. 
In the first book, the first narrative that he's talking about here, he writes the Gospel of Luke. All right, the Gospel of Luke is, is Luke's medical, investigative, and historical report regarding the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And in the Gospel of Luke, he writes this in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, telling us right away what his intent is. He says, It seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything, to write to you an orderly account, Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. He's telling us, notice he says that I've, I've carefully investigated everything regarding the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus so you can know the certainty of the events that have taken place. He's telling us right in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke that the things that he's recording, the things that he's writing, he's doing it with the intention of us knowing the certainty of the things that have taken place in these events. There's a guy by the name of William Ramsey. He's one of the, the greatest um, histor- historians and, and archaeologists ever. He's known as that. If you study history, you've studied archaeology, then you most likely have come across his name. All right, a brilliant guy. You know what his life goal was at one point? His life goal, greatest historian and archaeologist, one of the greatest ever, his goal was to disprove the credibility, the historical credibility and reliability of the Bible. In particular, his goal was to disprove the reputation and the credibility of Luke as a historian. Yet after a lifetime of historical and archaeological research, he concludes this. Ramsey states, You may press the words of Luke to a degree beyond any other historians, and his words will stand the keenest scrutiny. Luke is a historian of the first rank. This coming from one of the greatest historians and archaeologists ever, who at one point made it his life goal to disprove Luke as a reputable historian. He said, no, no, listen, this guy's reputable. I've checked it. I've, I've searched the facts. He's a historian of the first rank. You know what he's saying? He's saying that the things that Luke writes in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he's saying it's all true. It's all accurate. It's all trustworthy. Which would include the things that Luke is about to report regarding the resurrection of Jesus. Again, verse 1, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Notice that Luke says that we have many convincing proofs regarding the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus has risen from the dead on the third day. But it's important for us to also realize that the burden of proof is equal for both the skeptic and the believer. See, the skeptic has to, has to prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, just like a believer has to prove that he did. But there is an equal burden of proof for both. I think a lot of times what happens is we think that only, only believers have to, have to share the burden of proof. No, there is a burden of proof on both. If you're a skeptic, you have to give us logical reasons, proof, evidence that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Just like a believer has to provide you with some proofs that he did, some evidences that, you did, that he did. Luke says that we have many convincing proofs. I've preached numerous sermons on the evidences that we have that would lean to the direction of believing that Jesus rose from the dead. You can check it out on our website, cityawakening.org. Not going to get into it as much today because we're focusing on the ascension of Jesus, but Luke says we have many convincing proofs that Jesus has risen from the dead. 
You know, there is one proof, one piece of evidence that a skeptic, if they could provide it, it would completely shatter all claims about the resurrection of Jesus. One piece of evidence, one proof, that if a skeptic can provide this, it would completely destroy everything there is to know about the Christian faith and shatter all resurrection claims about Jesus. You know what it is? Show us the body of Jesus. Show us the body of Jesus. Show us the bones of Jesus. If a skeptic can show us the body of Jesus, show us the bones of Jesus Christ, then it would completely shatter everything about the resurrection and everything about Christianity as we know it. Yet this is where you will hear crickets from a skeptic. You will hear crickets from a historian. I mean, history is awkwardly silent on this. Because there is not one credible historical document that can tell us where the body of Jesus is. Not one. Which has always been very fascinating to me, because if you think about it, we are talking about the most public figure in history, the crucifixion being the most public event in history. And you mean to tell me nobody knows where the body is? You mean to tell me nobody knows what happened to the body of Jesus? We don't have one single credible document telling us, hey, this is where Jesus Christ is laid. Go open the tomb up. Go look at the bones. That's intriguing to me. Because you want to know what we do have? We have numerous documents, credible documents, historical documents, both Christian and non-Christian. We have numerous documents telling us that the Romans and the Jews were trying to prevent any kind of claims about the resurrection from spreading. We have all kinds of documents, both Christian and non-Christian, telling us that the Romans and Jews did everything they could. You know what they did? They sealed the tomb. They even put guards to guard the tomb. And then they even tried persecuting and killing Christians for spreading claims that Jesus had risen from the dead. It is a historical fact that the Romans and the Jews did not want claims about Jesus rising from the dead to spread. If that is the case, then why didn't they just show people the body of Jesus? Think about that. Like all they had to do was to say, you know what? Everybody's talking about Jesus rising from the dead. I'll tell you what, we're going to put that to death here. Let's, we're going to put, put the resurrection claims to death, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to, let's roll the tomb away. Let's get the guards. The guards pull them out. Pull out the body of Jesus so they can see the body of Jesus. Why didn't they do that? You know why they didn't do it? All they had to do was the reason they didn't show Jesus' body back then. The reason why skeptics and historians still can't show the body of Jesus nearly 2,000 years later, despite all the archaeological digs and historical finds we've had, is because Jesus is alive. He's alive. He's risen from the dead on the third day. And Luke says we have many convincing proofs to show it. Skeptics, zero proofs. Zero evidence on Where is the body of Jesus? So historians are silent on where the body of Jesus is. But do you know what else they're not silent on? It's intriguing. They are not silent on the fact that there were historical, um, that there were actual claims being made in history 
during that period that Jesus had risen from the dead. They're not silent on that. They have both Christian and non-Christian sources that reveal that, yes, in fact, there were claims being made that Jesus had risen from the dead. There is a um, Roman historian, Jewish historian as well, by the name of Josephus. And they found some, some of his writings uh, recently in the Middle East. Josephus says, Jesus' disciples reported he had appeared to them three days after his resurrection and that he was alive. He was perhaps the Messiah who the prophets have recounted wonders. You know, what just, just see, you know what that's showing? That's showing that, yes, in fact, again, not a Christian, Jewish historian, Roman historian, and he's saying, yes, in fact, there were claims during this era. He lived during the lifetime of Jesus' followers. He says, yes, in fact, there were claims being made that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, we've got to put the pieces together, right? Now, all of a sudden, what we see historically, if you study history, you, you study the timeline, during this era when those claims are being made, all of a sudden, you see this massive spike in Christianity. You see this massive spike in Christ. Christ followers. So we have to ask ourselves, why? Why was there all of a sudden a massive spike in Christ followers after those claims are being made? I mean, we are talking about the crucifixion, one of the most shameful public deaths that people could die from back then. You did not start a movement on the crucifixion, on the shame of the crucifixion. So people didn't start following because of the shame. They wouldn't have followed somebody who died a shameful death on the crucifixion, but they'd follow them. If that person said they were going to rise again on the third day, and they did. See, what we see historically is there were claims being made. All of a sudden, there's this massive spike and this increase of Christ followers after those claims are being made. Historian Edwin Yamuchi says, there were multitudes of Christians in Rome by 64 AD. There were all kinds of people from cities and countrysides, men and women, slave and free. They worshiped Jesus as God. The point is, we have all kinds of documents, historical documents, that historians consider are credible, which in fact show that there were claims being made that Jesus had risen from the dead, that show that there was a rapid spike and increase of Christ followers as a result of those claims, and that Rome and the Jews did everything they possibly could to prevent those claims from spreading, even persecuting and killing Christians for making those claims. Luke says we have many convincing proofs. Skeptics, zero proof or evidence for what happened to the body of Jesus. Show us the body. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, I get this question actually a lot. Probably one of the, the bigger questions that I get from a lot of people is, you know, hey, hey Louis, do you, do you think that we're in the end times right now? You know, do you, you think Jesus is coming back any, you know, anytime soon here? I get that asked a lot. And so my response is always the same thing. It's, it's what Jesus said in verse 7 to 8. You know, I just say, you know, listen, I, you, Jesus said that we're not going to know the hour nor the day, so I'm not going to try and. And, and predict that. But I do think that we are, are close to the end times. I do think that we are close to Jesus returning. 
But it's not because of, you know, the, what the doomsday preppers, you know, would, would give you. Not for the same reasons they would. You know, doomsday preppers, they'll start, you know, pulling out some revelation, you know, book of revelation. Or they start talking about, you know, the, you know all these, you know, wars, you know, uh, plagues, you know, maybe COVID or, or even just humanity's moral decline that's happening. But see, the reality is, is that every generation has dealt with those things. Every generation has dealt with wars, they've dealt with plagues, they've, they've dealt with people who were claiming that we were living in the end times. I mean, look at the disciples here in the text, right? The disciples here in the text are thinking that it's in the end times for them, right? I mean, they're thinking that Jesus is now, he's come back to be that conquering Messiah who's going to, you know, dethrone Rome, that he's going to beat up Rome and conquer Rome and conquer all their enemies, Right? They're thinking the same thing. I will tell you, the closest I ever was to thinking that we were in the end times was during COVID when we ran out of toilet paper. Yeah, amen. My kids are saying amen to her. You know what? Because I'm like, oh God, I'm like, kids, grab the MREs and then, you know, we got to limit the squares on the TP because, you know, Jesus returned. We got to hold out till he returns. Amen. Was I the only one? Surely that would have been the end, right? Actually, You want to know why I really believe that we are close to the end times? Close to Jesus returning. I don't know the hour. Don't know the day. Don't even know if I'll see it in my lifetime. But I believe we're close. And here's why. And let this wake those of you up who may be skeptics. Okay? Not trying to fear you. I'm just trying to say pay attention to the history of this. The facts of this. Okay? To those of you who are nominal Christians, nominal believers... Think he could just kind of, you know, yeah, let me just punch my Jesus card every now and then. Not really take my faith serious. Pay attention to the facts of this, okay? In verse 8, Jesus says that he's going to return. This is what he's saying in verse 8. I'm going to return when my gospel message has spread to Jerusalem, Judea, and to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So when I said check the historical facts of it, if you look at the spread of Christianity, what you will find is you will see that what Jesus said is true and that it's happening. This is what I look at. The gospel has spread through Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And it's now reaching the ends of the earth. The one, the, the one section of the world that we are waiting for the gospel to spread in is a place called the 1040 window, okay, which is if you look at a map, it is the countries in a rectangular section on the map that are 10 degrees north and, and 40 degrees north latitude. Look it up, 1040 window, you will see this rectangular area. This is where the gospel is yet to spread, the ends of the earth. Okay. In that 1040 window are mainly the North African, Middle Eastern, and Asian countries. Now here's what's happening as of 2022. We are seeing North Africans starting to come to faith in Christ. We are seeing Asians, even in China, Chinese coming to faith in Christ. We're even starting to see people in the Middle East, Muslims, coming to faith in Christ. You want to know why I think we're coming closer to the end and Jesus returning? Again, don't know if it's in our lifetime. It's because we are now seeing that 1040 window is starting to become open 
and the gospel is spreading. It's because Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit, he would empower us to be his witnesses into the world, and that his gospel message would spread to the ends of the earth. City Awakening, it is happening. It's happening, okay? He's going to return. He's going to return. Skeptic, put your faith in Christ and trust in him before he returns. Believer, nominal believer, strengthen your faith in him, okay? Strengthen your walk with him. Don't, you know, treat him like a consultant, you know, I only consult him when I need him. No, treat him like your Lord and Savior, continually following him. Again, verse 8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud t- took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by him. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? The same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Notice that Luke says that Jesus was taken up, meaning he's talking about how Jesus ascended into heaven. Okay, so what he's talking about here is the ascension of Jesus, and there's three things that I want us to realize just about the ascension of Jesus, okay? Here's the first thing. The ascension is relational. The ascension of Jesus is relational, meaning Jesus wants to have a deep personal relationship with us. We see this in Jesus' interaction with Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, what we see happening is, is Mary Magdalene, she, she runs to the tomb, and then she sees that the tomb is empty, and then she starts crying because she thinks that somebody stole Jesus' body. But then she sees Jesus in his resurrected body, and she's filled with so much joy that, that she grabs Jesus, she clings to him, she, she hugs him tightly, and she's holding on to him. And Jesus says in John chapter 20, verse 7, he says, don't cling to me since I haven't ascended yet. The reason Jesus tells her don't cling to me is because she's trying to cling to him physically out of fear that she's going to lose him again. It's a natural response that any of us would have if, if we saw maybe a person that we love in our life, that we love deeply, maybe we've lost somebody we love, and we saw them actually resurrect from the dead. We would want to cling to them and hold on to them tightly, never letting them go, never leaving their side again. Because we don't want to experience the pains of losing them again. So the way she's responding would be a natural response that we would have. But Jesus says, no, no, you can't, you can't cling to, don't cling to me like this. Because if you cling to me physically like this, eventually you're going to have to lose my hand again. You're going to have to lose my hand so that you can eat, so that you can sleep, so that you can live the life that I've created you to live. But I have something better than that for you, Mary. I have something better than that for all my followers. What I have is I want to give you my presence forever. And so Jesus wants to ascend physically so that his presence would be with us spiritually through the Holy Spirit. Again, he promises in verse 8 that he's going to send us the Holy Spirit after he ascends. And then what we see happening in the record of the book of Acts, if you study the, the book of Acts, you see that Jesus wasn't absent. His presence was still at work in the hearts of the lives of, of his believers through the power of the Holy Spirit. We see that all in the book of Acts. So what we have is is Jesus wanting to have a deeper personal relationship with us us in the ascension of Jesus. He's saying, listen, I'm going to ascend physically, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit so my presence will dwell with you personally in your heart so that you'll never have to worry about losing my presence ever again. He's saying, hey, Mary, I have to ascend. If I ascend, you'll never lose my presence again. In the words of St. Augustine, 
You ascended from our eyes and we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. The ascension is personal, is relational. Number two, the ascension is transformational. Okay, the ascension of Jesus is transformational for our um, emotional and spiritual security. See, a lot of us, we are, we are emotionally and spiritually insecure. Now, I know we may walk around with all kinds of confidence, you know, putting up a front that we're confident and that we're secure, but deep down inside, every single one of us in this room has insecurities. You know, some of you have insecurities when it comes to your looks, your body, your appearances. A lot of women wrestle with that. Men too. A lot of women, as they're comparing themselves maybe to the the girl on the magazine or the filtered image on Instagram, social media. A lot of people have insecurities, wrestling with insecurities when it comes to their job, maybe their abilities, their intellectual abilities, their athletic abilities, their performances. A lot of men sometimes wrestle with that. Not just men, women too. Some of us, we... We wrestle with the insecurities of our relationship with Jesus, our salvation, our eternal security in heaven. Everybody wrestles with insecurities. And then what we try to do is we try to make up for those insecurities by putting filters on our photos, by covering up maybe some of the blemishes in our lives, maybe putting up a, 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 a super ego to inflate our confidence. Usually somebody who has a super ego is really trying to hide an insecurity that's in their life. We try to cover up our blemishes. Or maybe we work extra hard trying to to prove our worth to to our peers, to our parents, maybe even to God. See, what we're doing when we do those things is we're putting ourselves on trial. Every day we're putting ourselves on trial, trial, trying to get people to love us and to accept us, whoever it is that we're trying to prove ourselves to. But see, the ascension of Jesus allows us to rest from that trial. The ascension of Jesus allows us to not have to try and gain anybody else's love or approval anymore because we have Jesus who's ascended in the heaven, who's seated on the throne in the heavenly courtroom, giving us a verdict of not guilty, full of forgiveness, full of love, full of acceptance. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. When you believe that Jesus died for your sins on the cross, when you become a follower of Jesus, he becomes your great intercessor who's constantly interceding on your behalf. He's daily interceding on your behalf in the heavenly courts, giving you a verdict of not guilty. Forgiveness, love, and acceptance. The verdict is already in for those of you who are followers of Jesus. He's already given you love. You have have forgiveness, love, and acceptance from really the the only person whose opinion matters more than anybody else's in the world. When you receive that, think about how liberating that can be for your life. Imagine never believing that so much that you never have to try to prove yourself to anybody again. Imagine how liberating that would be. Imagine how liberating it would be for you to feel like, you know, I don't ever have to try to, you know, gain this person's love or gain their approval for my life ever again. That would be extremely liberating. This is what Jesus offers us in the ascension. The more you believe in Jesus' ascended opinion of you, the less you'll worry about people's descended opinions of you. 
The more you believe in Jesus' approval for you, the less you allow other people's opinions of you to control you. Okay, Jesus' ascension is transformational. Last one, number three. The ascension is hopeful. Okay, the ascension of Jesus is very hopeful. You know, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that after Jesus ascended, he's seated on the throne. He sat on the throne of the universe, okay? So Jesus ascended into heaven. He's seated on the throne of the universe, meaning he is controlling the universe in a way that is going to eventually turn out for our good. He is seated on the throne of heaven, controlling history in a manner that is going to eventually turn out for the good of those who love him. Romans 8, 28 says, we know all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Jesus ascended into heaven right now as we're speaking. He's seated on the throne of the universe, controlling history, controlling the world in a way that is going to turn out for the good of those who love him. Yeah, all right, Louis, well, if that's true, then why is life so hard? If that's true, then why is my life so hard? Why does the world seem like it's such a wreck? See, the reason is because when Jesus created the world, when God created the world, he didn't create it with sin and death. If you go back and you read the Genesis account, it says, it is good, it is good, it is good every time God created. When God created, it is very good when he created humans. See, God didn't create the world with sin and death. He created the world with the possibility of sin and death to give us free will. Now, see, this is, you know, for us, what we tend to do to God is like, God can't win. We tend to put God on the judgment seat, right? Instead of the throne of our lives, we put him on the judgment seat. Because what we really want, I know, I wrestle, listen, I do this too, right? What we really want is we want a life that is free from, from suffering and free from evil. But you know what we don't want? We don't want God controlling our lives. And so which is it? Do we want God to control our lives to such a capacity that we never have free will to make wrong decisions that end up leading to consequences, evil, destruction in our world? Meaning we are no, long, no much more, we're, we're nothing greater than an iPhone. Right? If we really want that, we want God to remove all suffering and evil from our lives completely, then, then we got to ask him to make us like an iPhone where, where we really don't have free will. Or... You know, because we're Americans, right? You know, we're, we're Americans, not Americans, right? You know, we, we want free will, right? We like our free will. Don't try to control me, God. Give me some free will. Okay, well, then if we want free will, guess what that means? It means there's got to be a possibility of sin. There's got to be a possibility of evil. There's got to be a possibility of destruction that's going to happen in the world because of our sinful decisions. See how that works? So what God did was he created the world with the possibility of sin and evil to give us free will. And then when we rebelled against God, we, we turned the possibility of sin and evil into actual sin and evil. When we sin, we became contributors to the destruction in this world. Every time we sin, we are contributors to the destruction of, of our lives, our relationships. Those of you who are married, just ask your spouse. You know, when you sin against them, are they like, ooh, that felt good? No. Okay? We are contributing. When we sin, every time we sin, we are contributing to the destruction of our lives, our relationships, marriages, parenting, family, kids, friendships, strangers, destruction in our world. 
But God is still so loving that he is willing to step in and to still help redeem while he's seated, ascended on his throne. He's going to redeem the destruction that we have caused so that it'll turn out for our good in the end, for the good of those who love him. Now, the greatest example we have of that is the cross. The cross is the greatest example we have of how the ascended Jesus is still ruling and reigning in this world. Because what we see on the cross is he takes the horrific evil of the cross and he turns it into something that is beautiful and good, forgiveness for us. He takes the evil of the cross and turns it into salvation for us. See, the cross is the greatest example we have of how Jesus is currently ruling the world as we know it ascended into heaven. He is taking the evil things in our lives for those who follow him and put their trust in him. And he's working them together in a manner that will eventually turn out for our good. See, life is a lot like a crochet blanket, all right? You ever take a crochet blanket, if you ever look at the crochet blanket, what do you see? What do you see when you bring it up really close to your face? You know what you see? A bunch of chaotic knots and holes, right? But if you take a step back, if you have a much bigger picture, a different perspective of that blanket, you know what you see? An incredibly beautifully designed blanket that'll keep you warm. Up close, chaotic knots and holes. Back, beautiful blanket that'll keep you warm. Our lives are a lot like that because life is often hard. Life is often full of a bunch of chaotic knots and holes. And some of y'all came in here today with hardship, heavy hardship, carrying heavy burdens when you walked in here today. You know what Jesus is saying? He said, hey, bring those burdens to me. Share them with me. It's okay for you to express your heart, your struggles, your fears, your worries, your concerns, your frustrations with the hardships that you're carrying that you walked in here with. Jesus is saying, take those things to me, and then I want you to just take a step back, okay? Just take a step back today, this morning, and and have an eternal view in mind. Have an eternal picture in mind. Because up here, when you're just looking at this here, when you're looking at all this, you, know, you can't see the other things that I may be working and that I may be doing. And so all you see are the chaotic knots and holes in your life. And it's okay, let's talk about that. Let's express that. Come to me on that. And let's talk through the struggles and the pains and the burdens of that and the fears and the worries and the anxieties that are coming from that. Let, talk to me about that. But then hear me today through the word that's being proclaimed and preached. That, hang on, take a step back because that's not going to be the end of your story if you put your faith and trust in me. I want you to see the eternal picture that's in mind. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust that I see all the chaotic knots and holes in your life. I want you to trust that I am weaving all of that together into one giant blanket of grace. I'm weaving it all together into a giant blanket of grace that will cover all your sins and pains never to return again. I know that sometimes... It feels like Jesus is absent when bad things are happening to you. But the ascension of Jesus shows us that Jesus is never absent. 
The ascension of Jesus shows us that Jesus is still ruling the world, just like he ruled the cross. He's going to work all things together for the good of those who love him. We may not understand it or even see it in our life right now, but his promise is you put your faith and trust in him, eventually he will make sure that it all turns out for your good on the day that you enter into eternal life. He redeemed the horrific evil of the cross. He can redeem the horrific evil in our lives if we put our faith and trust in him. This is the big idea of the message, okay? Let's have the worship team come on up. The big idea is that the ascension of Jesus means there is hope. The ascension of Jesus means there's hope because of the daily intercession of Jesus. He is interceding on our behalf even right now as we are speaking. City Awakening, do you need hope? Those of you watching online, do you need hope? Where in your life do you need hope right now? Do you need hope for the burdens that you're carrying? What burdens are you carrying? What what problems are you facing that are causing you to lose sleep at night? Where do you need hope? As one scholar put it, you may think that you're at the end of your rope, but you're never at the end of hope. You're never at the end of hope if you have hope in Jesus. And so whatever burdens you're carrying, whatever problems you've been carrying, bring those to Christ today and find hope in the ascension of Jesus. You can always find hope in the ascension and daily intercession of Christ. So where you're at in your seats, right here, right now, whatever burden you're carrying, whatever struggle you walked in here with, maybe whatever insecurity or even sin or skepticism or nominalism that you walked in here with, where you're at in your seats, give that burden to Christ. Give that skepticism to Christ like the skeptic we're going to baptize in just a few minutes saying, I'm done being a skeptic and I'm not a skeptic anymore. Today, Jesus, I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Where you're at, place your burdens and anxieties onto him right now. Put your faith and your trust in him. Jesus, all these things that have just been lifted up to you, would you provide us with the covering and the blanket of your love? Cover us with your presence. Cover us with your hope. Help us to walk away from here today knowing that, Jesus, you are our ascended Savior who loves us, who cares for us, who lived, died, and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins and has ascended into heaven and is working all things for our good and for your glory according to your plans and your purposes. Jesus, help us to trust you with those plans and purposes. It's in your beautiful name that we pray.